The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would secure an Old Testament and turn to Numbers chapter 16, Numbers chapter 16, We'll spend some time there in the first half of our lesson, and we'll reference it throughout the rest of the lesson. So whenever we leave Numbers 16, you might mark it so that you can easily reference it again. Numbers chapter 16. You know, the subject of fellowship is really a blessing to even discuss. Fellowship has much to do with our salvation. The entire idea of salvation is being in fellowship with God. We have our sins taken away so that we can be in a relationship with the one who has no sin and to know him is eternal life. And there's some blessings that cascade down from our fellowship with God that we enjoy as spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus and such, but also our fellowship with those who have likewise been redeemed by the blood of Christ and been saved by God our Father. And so fellowship brings a lot of joy when we discuss it. It's something I think that we do enjoy discussing. We may be talking about fellowship without ever really even recognizing it specifically because it may be just a subset of fellowship. But the matter of fellowship, while it's very joyous in nature, logically with the very idea of it brings about some negative applications that are absolutely necessary that we apply, we must apply the positive matters of fellowship to receive one another, to help each other out, to enjoy one another's company, grow closer to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to to come together as a congregation and worship God and, and all of those matters. But if there's the positive side of fellowship, and that is the commonality we have with God and therefore have with one another as we're in fellowship with God, then there's got to be the negative side of it. What if one of us is in sin. What if one of us is found out to be in sin and although we are reproved and we're exhorted to come back to God, that person does not wish to. What happens then? And so we can't just take the joyous and positive side of fellowship. If we're going to take that side of fellowship, we must of necessity accept the more difficult matters which pertain to the subject. And they are difficult indeed. I think that the boundaries of fellowship that God has set forth in Scripture are very, very clearly defined. We can know what God expects of us. We can know who we're allowed to have fellowship with. We'll touch on it briefly throughout this lesson, but I want to especially note this evening the difficulty of applying those negative aspects of fellowship, that is, withdrawing fellowship from one who is impen- un- unrepentant and impenitent in their sins. It's not that we withdraw from them right away, don't get me wrong. There is a period of long-suffering. We understand that. We exhort them to come back to the Lord. We reprove them. We, we deal with them differently within their different cases. But there comes a point in time when that person has not returned to the Lord and they're in their stubborn, rebellious ways. And God calls us to now separate ourselves from them. And he puts no kind of, of limit on that. It doesn't matter who it is. It could be those of our own household, those of our own family. And if they are in sin and unrepentant of that sin, God calls us as a final mark, as a final um, effort to bring them back to actually withdraw from them. And knowing when that has to happen is not necessarily the difficult thing. It's doing it. We know it has to be done, 
but it's easier said than done. And we recognize that more clearly and intimately when it happens to us on a personal level and we have to withdraw from those who are closest to us, perhaps even just those who are of our very number. And I think Numbers chapter 16, which is an account of Korah's rebellion and God's destruction of Korah and those people who are associated with him, kind of impresses us with the seriousness of God's requirements of withdrawing fellowship from those who are not in fellowship with him. It's something difficult to do, but we had better do it. And I think Numbers 16 really shows us why. That really the failure to do as God commands, that is to separate from those who are in sin, ultimately leads to what I would call a tragedy of fellowship. You see, fellowship can be a joy and a blessing, but fellowship with the wrong people can be a curse. And number 16 shows us that. I want to first look at this record of number 16, one that we might be familiar with. And verses 1 through 3, the record of Korah's rebellion begins. It says, Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Their complaint was that Moses and Aaron had usurped their positions of authority. We know Moses to be that great prophet of old that typified the coming of the one greatest prophet, which would be Christ. We read that in Deuteronomy. And Moses was the leader in that regard of Israel, God leading through him. Aaron was the high priest and his sons, part of the priesthood. And Korah, Dathan, and Abiram's complaint was that you've usurped this role. You've taken this upon yourselves. Aren't we special too? Aren't we children of Israel? Aren't we part of the tribe of Levi? Why are you the ones that get to be in this position? Why not us? In verse 8, that description continues, and Moses charged them with discontentment. He said, Here now, you sons of Levi, it is, a, is it a small thing to you that God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve them, and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? He's saying you're discontent. You're not content with where God has placed you. Aren't you blessed enough? The tribe of Levi, while not all of them served as priests, only those of the household of Aaron served as priests, Aaron the high priest and his son priests after him. The tribe of Levi had a, an intimate association with the tabernacle and all its furnishings and all its, its ministry. And he says, isn't that enough? No, you take too much upon yourselves. Now you're seeking something greater than what God has appointed you to. There's many applications that can be made with regard to the nature of that rebellion. But notice what progressed in this passage. What Moses did is he proposed the test. Okay, you think that me and Aaron and the priest have usurped this position. You think we don't have the right to be in this position, that you have every bit as much of a right as we do. So let's, let's do a test. You perform this priestly service of offering up incense and see who God chooses. Verse 4, 
It says, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all the company saying, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all your company, put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the holy one. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. He's saying, okay, we're going to test who God chooses. And he's confident that God's not going to choose them because God has appointed Moses. God has appointed Aaron. He reiterates this proposed test in verses 15 through 19, and they go along with it. They gather their their censers and they put incense on it and they gather together before the tabernacle of meeting. But I want us to notice something additional that Moses says to the Lord in verse 15. Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. He's saying, first of all, I've not done anything to them. They're not rebelling against me. They're rebelling against you. And he said, don't respect their offering. Now, it's not that he had this idea that God would respect their offering. He knew that they were out of of their position, that they were rebellious. But he calls upon the Lord to not respect their offering. When they offer up that incense, make sure everyone knows that they're the ones that are out of place, not me and Aaron. Verse 19, Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. All are going to know who God has chosen. What God does, though, is first tells Moses and Aaron to separate from these men. Verse 20 says that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, separate yourselves from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And then they petitioned God on behalf of the congregation because they didn't want the whole congregation to be consumed. So then the Lord spoke to Moses saying in verse 24, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. You see, there's where the separation comes into play. They're in sin. I'm going to consume them, get away from them. So there is a, a distinction between you and the wickedness and tell the congregation to do that as well. And so Moses does that in verse 25 Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. He called them to separate, lest they be punished as well. And then the punishment commenced. First of all, in verses 28 through 30, Moses described what would happen and why it would happen in that way. If these men die a natural death, that must mean that we have usurped our position, that God is not happy with us, and we have not brought this, or we have brought this about. But then he says, if something supernatural happens, the earth breaks open and swallows them up, then you will know that God is the one that is doing this And it is God who has appointed us. And it happened in verse 31. It came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry For they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. I want us to notice, though, 
what continues to be in this passage. We might remember back in the first section of this chapter that not only did Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and on gather together in opposition to Moses and Aaron and ultimately in opposition to God, but they influenced 250 others to come with them. Now, these 250 others weren't the ringleaders. They didn't devise this plan. They weren't the ones that were conspirators. They were just followers. They were in association with Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and on. I want us to notice what happened to them in verse 35. The men who were offering up incense as the test that Moses proposed required that a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. So Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all their household and those who were with them perished by being swallowed by the earth. And then those who were maybe a little bit more distant from the sin but still involved in it and associated with it also perished, 250 men consumed by fire. Then we see something else happen. In verses 41 through 50, the congregation complained about what had happened. They complained to Moses and Aaron, and they said in verse 41, you have killed the people of the Lord. Now we pause there and we remember that Moses and Aaron, they're not the ones in control here. God's in control. He says back when he describes in verses 28 through 30 what will happen, that if a supernatural event happens, that means God is doing this. I didn't kill him. Aaron didn't kill him. God is the one who punished them. And they're complaining against the punishment. They're complaining that more were killed. Notice what happens in verse 44. After they complained, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them. In a moment, they fell on their faces. So Moses and Aaron said to Aaron, take a censer and put fire in it from the altar, put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. So he put, it in, uh, put in the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. So the plague was stopped. Now, those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had stopped. We notice a series of events, the rebellion, therefore the sin, the proving that they were in sin and it wasn't Moses and Aaron that were in sin, the punishment on those who had directly sinned and were most intimately associated with the sin, but also the punishment of those who were just associated with them, who were just around them, who didn't separate themselves. God said, get away from them, they're going to be consumed, and they didn't make a distance between them and the sin. They were consumed as well. And then we see some people complain about it. How dare you do that? How dare you consume them just because they didn't get away from them? How dare you consume them at all? And those people were punished as well. I think what this does for us as we consider the topic of fellowship is it really drives home the seriousness of the matter of separating ourselves from sin and those who are in sin. God means what he says, and there are consequences to not carrying out his will. Before we get into some of those specific instances of application as we reference the chapter of number 16 again, First, I want to very quickly remind ourselves of the grounds of fellowship to really show why all of this in number 16 went on. How did God justify killing these men 
and not only those men who had sinned, but those who were still with them and associated with them. And 1 John chapter 1 in the first seven verses, among other places, this is really a passage which very clearly establishes the boundaries of fellowship that God has set. Who has fellowship with God? And therefore, who has fellowship with each other? And those who are in fellowship with God, who are they allowed to have fellowship with? First John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 7 tell us. John records in verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Yes, Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins, but we are well aware that Jesus also came to this earth as the light that exposed darkness. He came to show the glory of God in the flesh. John 1 and verse 14 talks about that word becoming flesh and we beheld him and the glory that is of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth he came to reveal god because to know god is to have eternal life to know god is to be in fellowship with god we made that that connection at the very beginning in our introduction that fellowship with god is really what salvation is we are in a relationship with god our sins are washed away and we are in fellowship with the holy one but we don't have Jesus with us here today, as we noted well this morning in, in this morning's lesson regarding how God communicates to us. He communicates to us through his son, but his son's no longer here in the flesh. And so he communicates to us through the revelation of truth through the disciples. And they have recorded the New Testament for us to learn about. And when we read the New Testament, we read Jesus. We read about the word and we read about God. And as we submit to those words and we participate in those matters, we have fellowship with God and with Jesus. And notice there, he also said that you have fellowship with us. That's why your joy is made full in verse four. But he said that we declared the word of life. There's a message that was declared, which shows what you have to do, where you have to be to be in fellowship with God. And he commences with that message in chapter one and verse five. He says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In the scriptures, light stands as truth. Light stands as righteousness. Light stands as holiness. Darkness stands as error. Darkness stands as sin and unrighteousness and unholiness. What it's saying is that God is completely separate from sin and error. God is light, and it's not just that a little bit of darkness can be associated with him. In him is no darkness at all, and with that comes these implications. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so verses 3 and verse 7 really show the conditions of fellowship with each other. Is that man or that woman in fellowship with God, are they in the light? If they're in the light and you're in the light, you have fellowship with one another. It's about commonality. If they're in darkness, but you're in the light, you don't get to have fellowship with them or else you're in darkness as well and God can't have fellowship with you. 
It's very simple. It's about commonality. If there's a person who is in fellowship with God, that is, they're in light, they don't have sin to their account, then we can have fellowship with them. Sin separates one from God, and therefore sin separates one from those who are also with God. Now, that can be repaired through the asking of forgiveness and repentance, but what if that persists and they don't repent? We cannot extend fellowship to them because they are not in fellowship with God. And these are the very kind of principles that came into play with the sins of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, along with all the ones that were destroyed with them who were of necessity participating in their sins. I want to consider those implications of maintaining fellowship with those in sin and why it's so serious that we heed God's command to separate from them, no matter who they are. If they're in sin and they are not repenting, they're not in fellowship with God and we cannot be in fellowship with them. I want us to notice back in Numbers chapter 16 how God called for a separation from sinners, even from those of their own brethren. Failed to mention before that Korah is the first cousin of Moses and Aaron. They have the same grandfather. And so what God is saying is that, see, there's your first cousin. You need to get away from him. Why? Because he's in sin. And you don't want to be consumed with him. You need to get away from him. God calls for a separation from sinners. Verse 20, it said, separate yourselves from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. They pled for the congregation. Don't consume them all. But what was necessary for the congregation to participate in that would spare them from the wrath to come. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses and Aaron, you've got to get away in order to be spared. The congregation is going to be spared only if they get away. The fact of the matter is, God calls us to separation from sin or else there are consequences in our association with it. The New Testament clearly lays this out. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, Peter records that as God who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Holiness is another word for sanctification. And really the word pure or purity is akin to this word hagios, which is translated holy. And so holiness is separation from all impurities or separation from sin. And we understand what pureness or purity is. It's not a little bit of stuff there. It's not a little bit of dirt. It's, it's completely pure. It's clean completely. And that's what holiness is. What Peter is calling them to is complete separation from sin and those associated with sin. Because God can't be involved in sin and he can't be involved with those who are associated with sin. This is essentially the topic of discussion with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We might remember this epistle was written after 1 Corinthians was written. And while they had made some reparations and they made some changes based on what God called them to through Paul in 1 Corinthians, they still were putting up with some false teachers in their midst who claimed to be apostles. Paul labels them in chapter 11 as false apostles. And so what they did is they had false teachers in their midst. And Paul is calling them to holiness. He's saying God can't be in fellowship with you if you're in fellowship with these men. He says, separate from them. Only then can he be your God. Notice that in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. This is what Paul writes. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see, how he does this is very effective. He uses several different words that really have a ton in common with each other. He talks about fellowship. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Those are diametrically opposed. There's nothing about them that is alike. What communion has light with darkness? They have nothing to do with each other. That's the whole point of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. And God is light and no darkness at all. Light and darkness are completely opposite. Christ and Belial, that is Satan, they have nothing in common. Or a believer with an unbeliever, those are polar opposites. They're antonyms. And the agreement of the temple of God with idols, absolutely nothing in common. The temple of God serves the one and only God. The temple of idols is something which serves false gods. Notice the application he makes. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. But therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He begins chapter 7 and verse 1 by saying, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us do something. These promises are that God will dwell in them, walk among them, be their God. They shall be my people. He says that I will receive you and I will be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters. Those are the promises. And those are blessed promises of fellowship. He's saying, I'll be in a relationship with you. I'll be in fellowship with you. You'll have my protection. You'll have the benefits of being my people. I will be there for you and you will receive salvation. But it's conditional. You got to separate yourselves from sin in general and from those involved in sin. He doesn't say separate from it. Did you notice that? Certainly separate from it, that being sin. He says separate from them. Come out from among them and be separate. And he says, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We noted earlier that really the difficulty of making this application of withdrawing fellowship, of separating from those who are in sin is not really in knowing whether we need to and where we need to. It's just doing it. And one of the most difficult circumstances which comes up with regard to that is when our own flesh and blood are the ones who have turned away from God and are now in sin. And what God says is that separate even from them. Remember when individuals came to Jesus during his ministry and said, your mother and your brothers are waiting for you. They want to talk to you. And they were talking about his physical family, about Mary and her other sons who were Jesus' half-brothers, of course. Remember what Jesus said to them? Of course, a paraphrase. He said, you are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And what he was calling their attention to is that the spiritual relationship far outweighs the physical relationship. That brothers and sisters in Christ share a greater and more important relationship that must not be compromised at any cost. It's more important than even physical family 
A lot of times that flip-flops. It's hard to make the application. And sometimes we place physical family who have departed from the Lord, once a child of God, but now they're in sin and they haven't repented, regardless of what we said to them, regardless of what words of, of reproof we've brought to them and exhortations to faithfulness we've brought before them. And even though they're not right with God, we still extend fellowship to them. God says that's wrong. God says separate from them. Really, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34 when he said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Luke chapter 12 is a record of the same occasion, and Luke records it in slightly different words. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword in Matthew 10 and verse 34. Look at what he says in Luke 12 verse 51. He says, do not, do you suppose that I came to bring, uh, to give peace on earth? I tell you, no, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against daughter. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He's saying, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword and the sword causes division. And we know from various places in the New Testament that the sword of Christ, which brings division, is the word of Christ. That is when the truth is taught. The truth is believed and the truth is applied. There is inevitably going to be division somewhere because not all are going to accept it. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says that the word of God is living in power and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrows, and discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It divides. That's exactly what John is recording Jesus as saying in John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's what it's about. It's separating yourself. And when one adheres to the truth, inevitably the consequence will be a separation from someone else. Jesus said that if your family member is not abiding in my word, I'm calling you to divide from them. That's exactly what the truth does. I want us to notice there, though, in Matthew chapter 10, he says this, that a man's enemies will be those of his own household. You know why his enemies are those of his own household? His enemies are those of his household that have not submitted to the truth of God because they're God's enemies. They're enemies with God. And if they're enemies with God and you're in fellowship with God, they're your enemies as well. And Christ is saying they're to be, you're to be separated from them. He says, if you love your family more than me, you're not worthy of me. I want us to understand that when we talk about how truth divides and how if we are adhering to the truth, we are not to have fellowship with those who are in rebellion to the truth in whatever way. We're not talking about us being better than them. We're not talking about us being out to get them. We're talking about us being on God's side and they are not on God's side. And so they're rebelling against God. While it has something to do with us in application as we are fighting for the Lord, certainly it ultimately pertains to their opposition to God. That's exactly what is recorded for us in number 16 and verse 11 when it says that they came up against Moses and Aaron. 
But notice what Moses pointed out. Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. What is Aaron that you should complain against him? Saying your quarrel's not with Aaron. Your quarrel's not with Moses. Your quarrel is with the Lord. And so when we take that step and there's some friction there and there's some resentment there, we've got to stand firm in this area that is supposed to be free from pure emotionalism and simply focused on the truth and understand that it's not our fault. We're not the ones that are being divisive. We're not the ones that are being hateful. We're not the ones that are causing trouble. We're not the rebellious ones. We're not the ones that are doing negative things. That person is because they're rebelling against the Lord. And if they're enemies of God, they're enemies of us. If we truly are the friends of God, God calls for separation from sinners. And naturally, another implication of that is that the failure to therefore separate from those sinners is tantamount to involvement in their very sin. A lot of times we don't like to think of it that way. Hey, they're the ones involved in the sin. All I'm doing is eating dinner with them. They're the ones involved in I'm not doing that. They're doing that. They're not even doing it right now. They're just guilty of it and they haven't repented of that. You know, I'm not doing what they're doing. I'm just having dinner with them. I'm just hanging out with them. I'm just associating with them. But what we see in number 16 and in countless places in the New Testament, that failure to separate from one in sin is tantamount to participating in their sin. I want us to notice that in number 16 in verse 26. This is what was said in that passage when Moses told the congregation to separate, he said, depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. See that? It's their sin. But if you don't separate from them, there is in a sense a guilt by association. You'll be consumed in their sins. You're not the one participating in this rebellion directly but if you don't separate themselves, what you do is put yourselves on them, their side that is against God. You participate in their sin. Second John verse 11 shows us this is the case. When John writes by inspiration that whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He's not in the light. That's what he's saying. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him in your house nor greet him. He's saying, be separate from them. Why, John? For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. John is not saying you're the one preaching the false doctrine. John is not saying you're the one walking in sin. John is saying when you have fellowship with that person and you don't make a distinction between yourself and them by separating yourself from them, you participate in that sin. You don't have to be the one that's pulling the trigger. You are guilty by association. It is tantamount to participation in the sin. And because of that, the failure to separate from that one results in receiving the same punishment as that one. Notice that in Numbers chapter 16 in verses 31 through 33. It came to pass as Moses finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and their, all the men with Korah and all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. What we get from this reading is that when Moses called the congregation to separate from Korah, Dathan and Abiram and their families, not everyone did. Because did you notice that, that Korah was there the men with Korah, and, but, but notice the distinction. It says that the earth swallowed, opened its mouth, swallowed them up 
with their households and their distinction between their, their households and all the men with Korah. I read in a commentary that those men that were with Korah were the servants. But in the Old Testament and in that culture, servants were part of that household. And he said household, it wasn't just talking about mom, dad, and sons, and granddaughters, and grandsons, and all that. It was talking about everyone in the household. The servants were part of the household. The handmaids were part of the household. He said those of the household were swallowed up, and all the men with Korah. He's speaking of those who were in fellowship with Korah. The King James Version says all the men that appertained unto Korah. The ESV says all the people who belonged to Korah. In what way? They belonged to him as they aligned with him against the Lord. They may have not been involved in his sin, but they certainly were participant in the rebellion because of their alignment with him. And then we see verse 35. Men who were not the ringleaders, men who were not the conspirators, but men who went along instead of separating from them. A fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. We go back to the epistle of Second John and we see that not only are those who fail to separate participating and sharing in their evil deeds, but they are going to receive the same punishment that those people are going to receive. That's what he says in verse 8 of Second John. He says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. And then he goes on to tell them, don't receive them into your house nor greet them because you share in their evil deeds. The things that they had worked for that they stand to lose if they don't separate themselves are the matters of salvation in Christ by their submission to the gospel. The whole epistle of Second John is about standing in the truth, walking the truth, that is, so as to be in fellowship with God and have the hope of salvation. And lastly, a complaints were brought against Moses and Aaron and ultimately against the Lord. And this is something we see in number 16 and verse 41 that they complained against Moses and God said that they were complaining against him. He said he was going to consume them. And in verse 49, it says, in addition to the 250 men that perished in the fire, and in addition to the others of Korah and those with him who perished as the earth swallowed them up, were 14,700 people. These were individuals who complained about God doing what he did. And it saddens me to say that there are a lot in the church who complain about the practice of withdrawing fellowship and church discipline. They say, I just don't understand how that's going to do any good. I don't get it. You know what? You're being too nosy when you get into that person's business and say, repent or else. Or maybe you're showing a lack of love and withdrawing fellowship from that individual. What they don't realize is that the lack of love is found in failing to do that. The lesson is not about how withdrawing fellowship, like in places of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, actually affords them the last opportunity to get their life right with God before it's everlastingly too late. It is for the salvation of their souls that we would discipline those who are persistent in their sin. That's what showing love is. It's tough love. It's not easy. But that's what shows love. But so many, they get up in arms about when a congregation decides we need to follow the Lord's command and we need to withdraw from these people. And we need to be warned about what is said in Numbers chapter 16. 
Remember in Numbers 16 and verse 11 that Moses pointed out that your quarrel is not with me. You are raising up against the Lord. That's exactly what those who complained did. They complained that, the, that Moses and Aaron had killed the people because they didn't separate themselves. How dare you? They weren't the ones in rebellion. They were just standing by them. But because they didn't separate, they were killed. And Moses and Aaron were not the ones that did it. God did it. I want us to notice an important fact of this, this particular topic of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 5 and verses 4 through 5 when the Apostle Paul calls that congregation to finally withdraw from the man who was caught up in immorality. Notice what he says here in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There's the positive part of it. It's to save his spirit. But I want us to notice that phrasing that we are familiar with. In the name of the Lord Jesus. By the power of our Lord Jesus, he's speaking about authority. He's saying, yes, I've already withdrawn from him, so I'm with you in spirit to do this as well. They should understand that I'm in agreement with this. But first and foremost, when you gather together and you make that outward indication that we are withdrawing from so-and-so because they are persistent in their sin and they're not repenting of it, that the Lord is commanding us to do this and we have the full weight of his authority behind us. It's not about us deciding to do these things and being divisive it's about carrying out the will of god that's exactly what is addressed in the second chapter of the second epistle to the corinthians he brings this context back up this this understanding that they had indeed withdrawn from that man that was involved in immorality but there's some interesting things we see in that passage in second corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 speaking of their discipline of that man he says this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. We skip to verse 9 and we notice this. For to this end, Paul says, I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. What he's saying is that when I told you to deliver that one to Satan, to separate yourself from him, to withdraw from him, to discipline him, that was a test of your obedience. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a, just a mere strategy that you could take or leave. It was a commandment, which means when you didn't do it, you're in disobedience to God. You're in rebellion to God by failing to do what he had commanded you to do. Notice that interesting phrase in verse 6. This punishment was inflicted by the majority. That implies that not all of them likely withdrew from that man. Not all of them agreed with it. Not all of them were happy about it. There was likely some that, like in number 16, saw what happened and complained about it. The majority followed through with it. Not all of them did. And he said it was to test your obedience. The majority of you were obedient, which means there were some wrong you that didn't participate in this, and you're guilty before God. We've got to understand the serious nature of God's call for our separation. Even, you know, we can apply this in various aspects. We need to be separate from the world. We need to be separate from sin in general. We need to be separate from error. And that may be matters which don't include those who have been baptized into the body of our Lord. But it certainly does. We need to be separate from those who have been baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins, who have become a brother or sister in Christ to us, but who are in sin and are not willing to repent of that sin. 
God says, separate yourself from among them. It may be your mother. It may be your brother. It may be your uncle, aunt, sister. It may be any of those. It may be your family. It doesn't matter. Separate yourself from them. And it's hard to make that application. It's hard to do. It's a sacrifice we've got to be willing to make. We've got to love Christ more than them is what Matthew 10 tells us. But let us all take heed and beware of the consequences that are expressed very clearly in the scripture and are illustrated in Numbers chapter 16. God is totally separate from sin and error. He is holy and he calls us to the same. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord, we want you to come into the fellowship of God. And you do that by being baptized into his son, who is God, that your sins would be taken away. You'd be added to the kingdom of the Lord and you'd have the hope of heaven as a son, as an heir of eternal life. We offer that to you this evening. If you have obeyed the gospel, but you've failed in some sense or fashion, or maybe you're just struggling, maybe you need encouragement, whatever it is of a spiritual nature that we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.